9, verses 1 to 8, and verses 32 to 38. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kedmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord, their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Habashaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorite, the Parasite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Now, therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of the princes, our Levites, and our priests. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sonia. Boys and girls, if you uh, come up to the front, we can pray before you head out to Story Keepers and Nursery. Great to see you all again today. Let's uh, put our hands in the air, bring them down past our eyes, close our eyes, talk to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for all your goodness and your love for us. 
thank you for each other. We thank you for uh, everyone in this congregation, from the oldest to the youngest. And we thank you that you want to speak to every one of us today, to point us to Jesus, to help us learn about him and how to follow him. We pray for the boys and girls in Story Keepers, that uh, you would help them learn today, help them be respectful to Miss Tara, to, to listen well to one another, and to learn from you. We pray for all the boys and girls in nursery as well, and for Rana uh, and as uh, she is in there helping uh, today as well. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I can encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you, uh, uh, just because I only had Sonia read part of the chapter today, and we'll be looking at uh, all of it, uh, so either a Bible or your um, ESV study journal books, if you have one of those. It's on page 475 in the Pew Bibles. Let me pray. Uh, as we prepare to think about this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you in particular today for this chapter, uh, perhaps an unfamiliar one to many of us, and yet uh, rich in many, many ways and instructive. And so we come with expectant hearts. We ask that you would uh, give us uh, ears to hear, hearts to understand and to apply uh, so that we might be uh, changed by your word today as your Holy Spirit applies it in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Francis Spufford is a favorite author of mine who writes both fiction and nonfiction. And in 2012, he wrote a book entitled Unapologetic, Why Despite Everything Christianity Can Still Make Surprising Emotional Sense. In that book, he has an entire chapter on sin, but Spufford prefers not to use that word because he says it conjures up unhelpful images for most modern people. When they start to think about what they might consider as sinful. It usually goes along the lines of a calorie-filled slice of rich chocolate cake. So he therefore defines sin this way, as the human propensity to mess things up. That's actually the PG version of his definition, uh, but listen to how he lays this out. He says, you can get quite a long way through an adult life without having to acknowledge your own personal propensity to mess things up, maybe even all the way through. But for most of us, the point eventually arrives when at least for an hour or a day or a season, we find we have to take notice of our human propensity to mess things up. Our appointment with realization often comes at one of the classic moments of adult failure, when a marriage ends, when a career stalls or crumbles, when a relationship fades away with a child seen only on Saturdays, when the supposedly recreational coke habit turns out to be exercising veto powers over every other hope and dream. It need not be dramatic, though. It can equally well just be the drifting into place of one more pleasant, indistinguishable little atom of wasted time, one more morning like all the others, which quietly discloses you to yourself. On Saturday morning, you notice that you're 39 and that the way you're living bears scarcely any resemblance to what you think you've always wanted. Yet you got here by choice, by a long series of choices for things which at any one moment temporarily outbid the things you say you wanted most. 
You glimpse an unflattering vision of yourself as a being whose want makes no sense, don't, whose wants make no sense and don't harmonize, whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged. You're equipped, you realize, for farce or even tragedy more than you are for happy endings. The human propensity to mess things up dawns on you. You have indeed messed things up. Of course you have. You're human, and that's where we live. That's our normal experience, end quote. Now I would suggest to you that if you're willing to be honest, you know exactly what Spufford is talking about. Well, many of us probably have many things uh, in the span of our lives for which we're grateful, for which we bring us great joy when we think back on them. We know that we've also made a long series of choices of which we're not proud, which have caused untold havoc and distress, and which cause us still, many of us, great grief and shame. A lifetime, whether you're still in your 20s or you're in your 80s, that long list of bad choices can pile up. Just like laundry can accumulate more quickly than we often anticipate, or dirty dishes can fill a sink with rapid vengeance, the accumulation of our sins and our transgressions can become so massive, so overwhelming, that we don't know what to do with it, and it just crushes us. The human propensity to mess things up has haunted humankind since time began. Well, in Nehemiah 9, we come to one of the standout prayers in the entire Bible where God's people rehearse the accumulation of their transgressions through their history as God's people. And that might sound rather morbid to us, but we're going to see today why they do that and how that is instructive for us as we deal with our own human propensity to mess things up, pile two. I'm going to save the sermon in a sentence uh, until a little later, but here are the three parts that are going to get us there. First of all, at the point of history. Secondly, we'll think about the language of prayer. And thirdly, we'll think about the heart of sin. Point of history, the language of prayer, and the heart of sin. First, then the point of history. Let's get our bearings in this chapter as we look again at verses 1 to 3. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Last week, if you were here, you'll recall that we saw that on the first day of the seventh month, the Israelites had gathered in Jerusalem for essentially what was a Bible study day, during which Ezra and his assistants had read from morning until midday from the law. And the response of the people was to start weeping as they realized how they'd failed to trust the Lord and to be obedient to his laws. But Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites had all told them, stop, stop weeping. Today is a holy day. Today is a, the festival of trumpets. It's a day for rejoicing. So they stopped weeping. But if you then track from the book of Leviticus, the festival schedule for Israel through that seventh month, the month of Tishri, you discover that then on the 10th day of the month was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and on the 15th day of the month 
the people were commanded to celebrate the festival of booths or tabernacles for eight days all the way to the 23rd day, which then brings us to Nehemiah 9, chapter verse 1, to the 24th day of the month mentioned at the beginning of this chapter. So by this stage, they've completed all these festivals, but instead of going home, the people deliberately remained to finish off what they had started almost a month previously when the law had been read to them on the first day. So we see the Levites issue a call to the people in verse 5. Again, the words that formed uh, much of our opening hymn. They declare, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. What we then have from verse 6 on is that we get to eavesdrop on this prayer that actually gives us the fullest summary of the Old Testament storyline in the Old Testament. It's an amazing passage. As you read from verse 6 on, you realize that the, those praying have selectively and strategically chosen what to include, referencing earlier parts of the Old Testament by using key phrases from those passages, adding some new material of their own, and thus representing the whole of the Old Testament story. If we had the time, we'd go through the prayer slowly and be able to, to see how it highlights particular key moments in its retelling of the Bible story. Because we have mentioned here, for example, of creation and of Abraham and of the Exodus and of Israel's time in the wilderness and their entrance into the promised land and the judges and the prophets and the exile. It's all here. And we'll come back in a little bit to why the Levites prayer includes all those parts of the story. But for now, I want us to see what this prayer tells us about the point of history. Look at verses 9 to 10. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. What was God doing as he brought the plagues on Egypt at the time of the Exodus, as he divided the Red Sea, as he delivered his people from slavery? What was he doing as he enacted a story that would be told and retold thousands, if not millions of times? Well, the answer is given at the end of verse 10. In, in verse 10, God was making a name for himself. The ultimate point of history is that God is making a name for himself. Over the years, I've found people to get a little confused, maybe even a little upset about this. The question they ask, and it's a legitimate question, is this, isn't God being rather egotistical and self-centered and arrogant to do whatever he does in order to make a name for himself? Anytime you or I come across people who do everything for their own sake, their own fame, we'd characterize them as selfish, egotistical. So why would God be any different? Could God have designed a reality such that he could make a name for someone else? It'd be more altruistic and not so self-focused. Couldn't he have delivered the people and punished Pharaoh and the Egyptians to make a name, for example, for his appointed servant Moses? Well, God could have, but if he had, he would have been an idolater, worshipping an idol. I've quoted Tim Keller's definition of an idol before, but here it is again. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, 
anything you seek to give you what only God can give. If God had sought to make a name for someone or something else more than for himself, he would have been telling us that there is something more important in this universe than he is. And there isn't. Something more beautiful and satisfying and splendid in the universe than he is. And there isn't. He would have been proclaiming that there is someone more caring and saving than he is, and there isn't. He would have been stating that there's, no, there is, there's a greater hero in the world than he is, and there isn't. God makes a name for himself because he knows he's the ultimate hero. He's the one you and I are called to trust with absolutely everything. And we see here that more clearly when we look at what follows at the end of verse 10. So they pray, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. What day was that? Well, it's the day of Nehemiah, roughly 400 BC. When had God originally made a name for himself according to the prayer? He had done so at the Exodus, a thousand years previous. So that God was making a name for himself, a name that at that point had lasted a thousand years and since then has lasted several thousand more. And that's his intention because this is the point of history. Everything that God does is to magnify his own name, his character, a revelation of who he is and what he's like so that you and I can know him and so that we will trust him and we can enjoy him. That's why all these stories are in the Bible. That God might make a name for himself because God's the ultimate hero. God's the one you and I need in order to overcome our human propensity to mess things up. God is the one that we're called to trust with everything because he's the ultimate point of history. That brings us to our second point then, which is the language of prayers. I've already hinted this prayer is a brilliant uh, collage, mosaic of biblical quotations, recollections, images, phrases. In fact, there's scarcely a phrase in this prayer that is not drawn from earlier in the Old Testament. There are far too many examples to give them all here, but let me just highlight a couple so you see what I'm talking about. Look at verse 11. You cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. Exodus 15, verse 5 and 10. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Back in Nehemiah 9, verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. A common phrase in the Old Testament, but one place where we see that is in Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What's, what's noteworthy here is that while the prayer quotes earlier parts of the Old Testament, none of it sounds cliche-driven. Even though it's steeped in Old Testament language, it, it sounds fresh. Don Carson tells the story of a British friend of his who had been trained to pray not merely in Elizabethan English, but with a certain ministerial twang. I met a few of those people in my time in the UK too. But this friend of, of Carson's had a dog, and every time the, the dog's owner began to pray, the dog would howl. Didn't matter if it was just a brief prayer of, of thanks at meals or a time of afternoon prayer that Carson and his friend shared, or, or something different. Didn't matter whether the dog was in the same room or the next room or at the far end of the garden, he'd howl when the man prayed. 
The man suggested to Carson that perhaps the dog was possessed. If demons can infest pigs in the Gospels, I guess they can infest hounds, he said. But Carson had a simpler explanation that this dog simply knew what was going on. Eternal and heavenly Father, in thine inestimable mercies, we bow in thy sacred presence, on and on and on, with a certain twang and pitch and language, full of scripture, but cliche-driven and artificial, and the dog thought so too. (laughs) But in contrast, let me tell you about my friend David Burke. David Burke is an Australian. He teaches at a Presbyterian seminary in Sydney. It's quite a few years since I've seen David. Uh, But for a number of summers, he and I both participated in uh, the pastor sabbatical retreats that I've been attending uh, most years, over the last few years. David is a very smart man with a heart to teach the scriptures to people and to see people come to faith and grow in faith. But the thing that always comes to mind first when I think about David are his prayers. Each day during the sabbatical retreat, we would begin the day and end the day worshiping together. And during that time, there would usually be a time of open prayer. And each time David would pray, his prayers were so rich in the scriptures, but not in a cliched way, not not in an artificial way. And consequently, every time his prayers just exalted God for his grace and his glory. They preached the gospel into my heart and the hearts of others, drew us into a deeper communion with God. And as we would leave those worship times, I always would find myself thinking to myself, you know, when I grow up, I want to pray like David Burke. And of course, I can pray like David Burke. And you can pray like David Burke. You and I can pray in a similar way to the Levites here, but it only happens by us immersing ourselves more and more in the scriptures. It doesn't just happen by itself. Prayer in Nehemiah 9 was the fruit of so much reading and studying of the Bible such that when their mouths were opened in prayer, Scripture just flows out. And such prayer pleases God because, as Joel Beakey has put it, God is tender of his own handwriting. God is tender of his own handwriting. The most delightful language of prayer is the language of Scripture itself. And then we come, thirdly then, to the heart of sin. In this long prayer, the the Levites don't actually get to the people's own present predicament until the very end of the prayer. Here's how their situation is expressed. Look at verses 36 to 37. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Here was the situation that had precipitated the fasting, the sackcloth, the crying out to God that occurs in this chapter. The people cry out to God, here is our condition at this current moment. We're slaves. They say it twice. And they conclude by saying, we are in great distress. And they're in in distress because even though they're now back in the promised land, and even though they've rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls, they recognize this is not a state of blessing. Because while they've returned from exile, they're still ruled over and taxed by others. But as they acknowledge their distress, they also confess that they know 
they are in distress because of their own sin. And not only that, but the distress they are in is distress that God himself has sent upon them. Look again at that in in those verses. Its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. It's God himself that had set the slave masters over them. And so these people are longing for deliverance from a distress that God himself had placed upon them because of their sin against him. Now, what's interesting, I think, here, however, is that at the end of this prayer, the prayer simply ends, you could say, descriptively. This is our situation. That is, there's no particular explicit directive or petition that comes after it. I think the reason that's the case is because the petition has been implied by everything that has gone before this. So that if you, if you have your Bible open, you just scan over verses 6 to 15, you'll notice that everything in that section is basically in the second person singular. That is, God is being addressed. You, 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 everything that he's done for his people. So, for example, verse 6, you made the heaven. Verse 7, you chose Abraham. You've kept your promise. Verse 8, you heard the affliction of our fathers. Verse 11, you divided the sea before them. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven. But there's a significant shift then when we come to verses 16 and 17. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. The shift, the contrast could not be starker. Here was starker. Here's all that God had done for his people. And then we read, but they, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously. It's very strong language in this section. The verb translated acted presumptuously is actually the very same one translated back in verse 10 to describe how the Egyptians had acted arrogantly. Paraphrase a line from the 80s band, the Bengals, the Israelites had walked like the Egyptians. There was an Egyptian nature to their their, their way of being. But with the Israelites, it was worse. Because unlike the Egyptians who were arrogant against other human beings, the Israelites had acted arrogantly against the Lord. And as you read on, the, the force of the language doesn't ease up. This was no momentary lapse on Israel's part. Everything here speaks of intentional, deliberate, open-eyed resistance to God's will. Israel had acted like a recalcitrant mule, like an unwilling cow. The essence of their sin was that they had refused to listen to God and they'd failed to remember all that he had done for them. But then look at how the prayer continues in the second half of verse 17 after this damning indictment of Israel. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Here is this mind-blowing, phenomenal character of God that despite all the preceding acts of goodness and grace that God had showered upon his people, they had rebelled against him. The question is, how is God going to respond? What's his response? Well, they tell us, you are a God literally of forgivenesses, plural. You are the God of forgivenesses, gracious, merciful, so on with the concluding statement, and you did not forsake them. 
God would, as we just saw, hand them over to their enemies in judgment for their sin, but he did not forsake them. It's stunning. And then what we have all the way through to verse 31 in this chapter is this scenario repeated another five times, so that six times in total we're told of Israel's rebellion in different situations, different contexts. Six times when Israel essentially refused to listen and failed to remember and so demonstrated their human proclivity to mess up. And six times we're told each time of God's response of grace and mercy and commitment to his people despite their rebellion. So here's the question that you have to ask as you're reading this chapter. Why do the Levites pray this way? Why do they keep focusing over and over again on the sin and failures of Israel, praying back to God the story that God himself had acted in the history of Israel? And the answer, I think, is this, that the people needed to know what God was like in those situations because that was precisely the situation they were now in with Nehemiah in Jerusalem. These distressed Guilty Israelites desperately needed to know if the God of this Old Testament story that they had rehearsed is the kind of God who would be ready and willing to rescue them from the consequences of their sin as he had done before. They realized that their hope is not in denying or trying to explain away their sin as we're so prone to do in our lives. Their hope was, as it always has been, simply in the character of God. So that the implied petition, by the time they come to the end of the prayer to God, is, will your great compassions continue, or are they past their sell-by date? Are your mercies still active, or have they ceased? The reason the prayer focuses on Israel's failures in the past is because nothing was more important for them to learn from that story right now than how God had responded to those failures And what they discover is what we have for our sermon in a sentence today is what the story demonstrates about God's response, that our sins, they are many, but his mercies are more. What is it that we can learn from this prayer some 2,500 years ago in our context today? Let me suggest that there's a similarity between us and the context here, and there's a difference. And first, the similarity. The Old Testament history embedded in the prayer here in Nehemiah 9 reminds us of what angers God more than anything else. It's idolatry. At the root of the Israelites' failure to listen and their failure to remember, indeed at the root of our human propensity to mess things up, is idolatry. It's making something else more important to us than God. That's why Martin Luther, the reformer, said you you actually cannot break commandments 3 through 10 without having first broken the first two commandments. That the reason we dishonor parents or commit adultery or murder or covet or you can add all the sins in your life The reason we do those things is because we have decided that we're going to worship something else other than God. It's also why King David in Psalm 51, after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had Bathsheba's husband Uriah murdered, 
could say in Psalm 51 to God, against you alone have I sinned. Come again, David. A little denial there, David. All the people that you sinned against as well. But David actually is telling the truth there in the sense that he understood that the one who was most offended, the one who is most offended in our lives, in our sin, is God. The Levites recognize that in this prayer of confession. We need to recognize it too, that at the heart of our sin are not issues of morality, are not breakdown in human relationships. The heart of our sin is a broken relationship with God. That to address our human propensity to mess things up, we need to first address our relationship with God. But that brings us to the difference in our context to that of the Israelites in Nehemiah 9. At the end of the chapter, and Sonia read this at the very end of chapter 9, the Israelites make a firm covenant in writing. And then in, in chapter 10, the promises they make as part of that covenant are spelled out for us then. They're in the areas of marriage and Sabbath keeping and maintenance of the temple worship, all practical outworkings of their confession, in the sense of the fruit of repentance. But there's still a problem here, because granted, this prayer in Nehemiah 9 has all the hallmarks of sincerity. But I'm guessing that all the previous prayers of confession and repentance on the part of the Israelites, they were sincere too. And look what happened there. The, the odds just are not very good here after the people's record and history of failure that things were really going to get any better this time any more than they did before. That after a thousand years of repeated failure, was this generation of Israelites going to finally be the one where the rot stopped? It seemed unlikely. And then add to the fact that if the rot didn't stop, what guarantee did the people have that God's mercy and compassion would continue to be extended to them? I mean, what was to stop God from responding to the next round of disobedience and rebellion by saying, enough is enough. I've had it up to here. I'm not going to be presumed upon by your fickle allegiance. Yeah, I'm slow to anger, but a, a thousand years is long enough. My mercy is over. Some of us feel that concern in our own lives, that our ongoing human propensity to mess things up is all too evident to us, and we wonder, how long is God really going to continue showing patience with us and mercy to us when we keep messing up over and over and over again? In John chapter 7 in the New Testament, we're told of another celebration of the festival, the Feast of Booths. And at the one we're told about in John 7, Jesus is there. Jesus has attended. And at that festival of booths, we read in verses 37 to 39 in John 7, these words. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Don Carson, whom I mentioned a little earlier, 
in his commentary on John points out that when Jesus says here, as the scripture has said, commentators struggle to know what scripture exactly Jesus is referring to. There are Old Testament references to streams of living water, but none, Carson argues, seem to really fit well here. So he suggests that the scripture that Jesus actually had in mind here was none other than our passage today, Nehemiah 9. But here is Jesus on the last day of the festival of booths. He's just spoken in the previous chapter about he, how he himself is the bread from heaven, a phrase that appears in the Nehemiah 9 prayer. John tells us that Jesus here was speaking in chapter 7 about the spirit also mentioned in the Nehemiah prayer. And there are other connections. And if, that, if that's the connection in Jesus's mind, and I think there's a strong case that it was, then Jesus here was proclaiming that he's the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths, just like he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament feasts. And as the Israelites concluded their Feast of Booths in Nehemiah 9 and 10 with a covenant, so Jesus is going to do a similar thing, only his is going to be a new covenant that will deal once and for all with this cycle of our repeated sin and our concern that God's mercy one day might possibly run out on us. And his new covenant is going to center on an exodus event too, like Nehemiah 9 does, but it's going to be a new exodus event to which we now look for proof of God's eternal, everlasting mercy and grace and steadfast love. And that new exodus event that we focus on, of course, is the cross. Because by Jesus' death, he's delivered us from slavery. Not slavery to the Egyptians, but slavery to sin. Slavery to our human propensity to mess things up. He's delivered us from that by dying in our place. So that the penalty for our sin is no longer pending like it was for the Israelites. That penalty had never truly been dealt with for them. But now it has. And now there's no question of God's mercy ever running out for us because he's provided the means for that forgiveness of our sin, past and present and even future. Our sins may still be many, but his mercy now is guaranteed to be more. And not only that, but his new covenant brings with it, with it final forgiveness for our sins. John indicates in, in John, Jesus indicates in John 7, it would also deliver into our lives the promised Holy Spirit, which slowly but surely is reducing our propensity to mess things up. A huge part of the Spirit's job description is to transform you and me into people who sin less and who obey more and who are marked by the beautiful fruit of the Spirit of love and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Our sins, they are still many, but his mercy is more. Our propensity to mess things up is still present, but his spirit is greater. So we have even more reasons than the Israelites to stand up and bless the Lord our God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be his glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for your unbelievable mercy to us, your grace and your love, which is that we do not deserve, grace and mercy that is demonstrated to us over and over again where we continue to sin, but you pour out your mercy and your grace to us. And thank you that through Jesus we have the confirmation, the assurance that your mercy will never run out and that you have broken the cycle of our sin so that one day we will know what it is to live lives of full grace and spirit and life because of what you have done for us. Help us to make you the center of our lives. Help us not to be idolaters focused on other things, thinking they will bring us what we're looking for. Help us to see that you are the point of history and the point of our history. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.